0: We're going to talk about this morning the holiness of God. Uh, As we have been learning about the tabernacle, we have been given many big ideas of the parts and pieces and purposes of the tabernacle, and not the least of which I think that we have learned that through this tabernacle structure and its purposes is this one clear fact. Our God is what? Holy. He is holy. Holy. Um, I've been helped over the years by several resources. I want to commend one to you before we begin. Uh, I may quote this book uh, maybe a couple of times this morning, but you will. Uh, this book is certainly woven in the fabric of this sermon, and that's R.C. Sproul's classic book, The Holiness of God. If you haven't read this, I think every Christian should read this at least once in their life. I uh, made it almost three-fourths of the way through again this weekend, rereading it in preparation for today and was reminded of how much this dear brother has taught me about the holiness of God and how much I have yet to learn. I have made sure there are several copies in the book nook for you to purchase and the first one who finds me after the service, I will give you a copy if you will begin reading it right away and so I commend that book to you. Another well-known book is called The Knowledge of the Holy and many of you may not have read that book but you've heard the first line in this book this book is by A.W. Tozer and in the beginning of his book the first line of the first paragraph is this Tozer says what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us How many of you have heard that line before Yeah quite a few of you what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think the most important thing about God that should come into our minds is that God is holy. Certainly, there are many, 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 many other things. But first and foremost, God is holy. If you do not understand holiness, you will not understand God. If you do not understand holiness, you will not understand yourself. If you do not understand holiness, you will not understand the depths of your sin. If you do not understand holiness, you will not understand the horrors of hell. If you do not understand holiness, you will not understand the privilege of prayer. If you do not understand holiness, you won't understand the attitude of worship. If you don't understand holiness, you won't understand the glories and wonders of heaven. If you do not understand holiness, you won't understand the cross. You will not understand that a holy God had to crush His holy Son so that an unholy people could be made holy. So we don't approach this subject flippantly, do we? Because we don't approach God flippantly. It is a fearful thing, Hebrews tells us, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't go casually fishing off of the edge of Niagara Falls and you don't let your kids play freely at the rim of the Grand Canyon and you don't yawn with disinterest when looking through a Hubble telescope. No, you stand in awe at those things. You look with wonder, don't you? You gaze with amazement, and thus we come to the holiness of God. Amen? Maybe, maybe some people that live in proximity to those wonders of the world, maybe they become familiar with the sounds of tons of rushing water going over Niagara Falls. Maybe they're familiar with the mass expanse of the biggest hole on the planet Or maybe there's an astronomer or two that drags in on Monday morning, punches his clock for another day of trying to find the end of the universe. But I doubt it. I doubt it. And neither should we ever become familiar with the holiness of God. We need to learn more about it. So in one sense, we need to become more familiar, but we never need to become familiar with the holiness of God. You agree? You agree? So we are given several peeks into what we see in Isaiah 6, several, several peeks into this glorious grandeur of God on his throne. You could turn to Ezekiel chapter 1, and we may try to do that this morning to see what is going on around the throne. You can turn to Revelation 4 and 5 and find glorious, holy activity going on incessantly. And you can turn to Isaiah 6, which is what we're going to do this morning. In my opinion, it's the most popular passage on God's holiness, probably because, at least in comparison with those other chapters I mentioned, it's easier to understand, perhaps a bit simpler, although not simplistic. It gives us a glimpse of the glory of God. And it gives us an idea of how to respond to the glory of God. In the holiness of God. I gathered my outline, borrowed at least the content of it from Jerry Bridges, who outlines this passage with four words God, guilt, grace, gratitude. God, guilt, grace, gratitude. I've expanded on those a little bit in asking and answering the question how do we respond to a holy God? First, God must be revealed. God must be revealed. Secondly, Guilt must, be, guilt must be received. Guilt must be received. Thirdly, grace must be received. Excuse me, guilt must be realized. Grace must be received. God must be revealed. Guilt must be realized. Grace must be received. And finally, gratitude must be the response. Let me say those again, and then we'll unpack each of those As we work through this chapter, God must be revealed, guilt must be realized, grace must be received, and gratitude must be the response. I think we heard those themes well this morning as we sang, didn't we? So number one, God must be revealed. Isaiah sees the Lord in a vision. Let's look in verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died. When did Isaiah see? I'm going to answer several who, what, when, where, why questions under this first point. This first point will be probably longer than the others. So if you're doing the clock math, don't be alarmed. When did Isaiah see? He saw the Lord when King Uzziah died in the same year. In the same year that King Uzziah died. Who was King Uzziah? Well, you can turn to Second Chronicles 26 You're welcome to do that, or if you would just listen as I read sections from 2 Chronicles 26. This is important to understand the context of Isaiah seeing the Lord. 2 Chronicles 26 tells us that King Uzziah became king at the age of 16 years old. This is the longest reigning king in our Bible, second only to Manasseh at 55 years. 52 years. That's eight and a half two-term presidencies, if that helps you. That's not quite as long, but almost as long as the 70-year reign of Queen Elizabeth II. 52 years. Second Corinthians 26 tells us that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, verse 4. It tells us that he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as as Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him prosper. God helped him, verse 7. He feared God. Uzziah, we're told, was a military king, a successful military king, an agricultural king. He was an industrious king. He was an innovative king, inventing machines to help fight wars. But he soon became a proud king. Verse 16. Well, verse 15 says, he was marvelous, mar- As his fame spread far, he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud. Let that be a warning to us. He grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. As he attempted to go into the holy place, which we're learning about, we haven't learned about the altar of incense just yet, but it's right in front of the veil which protects the common man from the Ark of the Covenant. It's between the... The table of bread and the lampstand, this altar of incense, he goes in there as a king to offer profane worship. And it takes 81 priests to go in after him. 81 men, 81 priests follow him into, went after him to stop him. But with the censer in his hand, the incense smoking off the end, he becomes violent and angry and refuses and was immediately struck with leprosy on his forehead. He was separated as a leper. He died as a leper. He was remembered as a leper. Nonetheless, he was still a good king. He was still remembered for his good kingship for his long reigning kingship. And his death, even though it ended poorly, his death most likely sent a nation into mourning. Isaiah might have been in the temple seeking comfort and consolation during his grief over the loss of King Uzziah when he received this vision. Maybe that was why he was there. Who did Isaiah see? That's when he saw, in the year that King Uzziah died. Whom did Isaiah see? Verse 1 says, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. In your Bible, you see that Lord is spelled with a capital L, and then lowercase O-R-D. If you'll glance down to verse 3, you see that Lord there is spelled with all caps. It's not a misprint. That means the first Lord, L lowercase O-R-D, is the word Adonai. That is a title for God, meaning sovereign one. Who did Isaiah see on the throne? The sovereign one, the sovereign Lord. That's his title. Similar as a title of president or king. In a moment, he's going to hear the Uh, And the heavenly creatures crying out, the Lord of hosts, that is God's name, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's God's personal name, his unspeakable name, his self-sufficient name. Adonai is his title. Sovereign One is his title. Yahweh is his name. So here is Isaiah caught up in a vision Maybe he's in the temple getting a vision of the temple or maybe he's out of the temple and the vision has him in the temple mourning the loss of a long reigning successful king and he is well aware and probably somewhat fearful of an empty throne. He sees the king of all kings, doesn't he? He sees the Lord of lords. He sees the sovereign of sovereigns who will rule far beyond a short 52 years. This king will reign how long? Forever, forever, and he says that later in Isaiah chapter 9. He prophesies about a lot of the things that he sees. Isaiah chapter 9. We read this and probably sang this just a few months ago in December when Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be, what? No end. Or I kind of prefer Handel's paraphrase. And he will reign, what? Forever and ever. This is who Isaiah saw on the throne. An everlasting reigning king. You worried about our government? Don't answer that. I know you are. <laughs> you worried about our leader, our president, our rulers? Not necessarily wrong to be concerned about those things, but are you trusting in our government? I know you're not now, but what about when Republicans are in control? Do you tend to trust more then? Shame on us. We don't trust in presidents and governments. We don't trust in chariots and horses. Who do we trust in? The name of the Lord, our God. We trust in the king of kings. We trust in the Lord of lords, the sovereign of sovereigns. I've read the end of the book. I know what this king will do, Revelation seventeen fourteen. when the enemies make war on the lamb, the lamb who was slain for the sins of Believers, this lamb will conquer them, Revelation 17, 14 says. For he is, the lamb is, the Lord of lords and the king of kings. Revelation 19, 16 says, on his robe and on his thigh, I don't even know what that looks like, has a name written, king of kings and lord of lords. Don't worry about our leadership. Don't worry about our government. Don't trust in them. We have a king on the throne, amen? Amen who rules and reigns forever and ever. That's who Isaiah saw. How did he see this? How how did he see this? This was a vision. He wasn't literally in the presence of God because we know that no one can see God and live. So this was a vision similar to Ezekiel's, similar to John the Revelator, probably similar to Paul the Apostles. We know that he saw the Lord. Again, it's reflected in the rest of the book of Isaiah. He writes in Isaiah chapter 2 that sinners are to enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord. So he is well aware of what it looks like to see the Lord in the splendor of His majesty. He calls the Lord in Isaiah 57 the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. So now he uses space and time to describe God. You don't use space and time as modifiers of one another. But Isaiah does. God inhabits that space, eternity, that's time. I don't even understand what that means. Isaiah remembered what he saw. But he didn't, wasn't literally in the presence of God because Christ himself dwells in unapproachable light. We know again, Revelation 20, that the heavens and the earth fled away from the Face of the enthroned Christ when he returns. So, this was a vision. This was a vision. That's when Isaiah saw. Who did Isaiah see? How did Isaiah see? Why did Isaiah see? Why did he have this vision? He saw the Lord most likely because he was to be commissioned as a prophet to the nations, he was going to be a prophet of an eternal king, for the eternal king, the Messiah. And so that he would have his message right, he had to get his God right. He had to have a right view of the God for whom he would be prophesying. This is a vision that God gave Isaiah. This is not a vision that Isaiah came up with on his own. You don't just make up your own ideas of God, beloved. We get our our understanding of God from God. This is the importance of knowing your Bibles. We don't get these kind of visions today because God has a completed, closed canon that tells us everything we need for life and godliness and tells us everything to know that we need to know about God. Not everything there is to know, but everything we need to know. This is why biblical theology is important here. You've heard Pastor Chris mention that, these biblical themes that run through Scripture. We're learning about a tent of animal skins and wood covered with gold. And somehow we're learning from that that God is holy. That's an understanding of biblical theology. We must have the right God. We must know the right Jesus. We don't follow the Jesus of Oprah. We don't believe the God of Osteen. We want to know the God of Scripture. Well, what did Isaiah actually see? Still in verse 1, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Either the throne was high and lifted up, or the Lord obviously was high and lifted up. It's the Lord who is exalted by means of the throne. And where you see a throne, there is a ruler. Where you see a throne, there is a king. I love the Puritan Matthew Henry, what he said about this throne that Isaiah saw Matthew Henry said, this is a throne of glory before which we must worship. This is a throne of government under which we must be subject. And this is a throne of grace, amen, to which we may come boldly. The train of his robe filled the temple. You probably have the same idea of the robe, the train of a robe, or you might think of the train of a wedding dress Weddings aren't as regal anymore. Now, they're in barns on hay bales with blue jeans, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But used to, the longer the train, it represented the beauty of the ceremony, the majesty of this ceremony. And even today, the longer the regality, the greater the majesty. So it could have this idea that you have a sovereign king whose train fills the temple. If the train fills the temple, then God fills the temple. And of course, we know that God is not confined to a temple. Another understanding of this word train, because it's only translated train here, elsewhere it's translated either skirt or hem. So this could just simply even be the lower parts of his robe fills the temple. Just a part of his robe fills the temple. Maybe that's all he was able to see. Maybe Isaiah dared not lift his eyes much higher than the ground on which the throne sat. You think of Moses wanting to see the face of the Lord and God said you can't. So he carved out a cleft and a rock and he covered Moses' face and he passed by and only let Moses see just a portion of the back parts of the Lord. You get the same idea here. In other words, as John Oswald said, words fail to describe the greatness of God. They can rise no higher than the hem of his robe. This is who Isaiah saw. What else did Isaiah see? Above him, verse 2, stood the seraphim. What in the world are seraphim? They're probably some kind of angel, but this is not the word often used for angel. Malach is the common word for angel, but this is not a word used for angel. This is a word translated fiery ones. Fiery ones. The emphasis on fire, on glowing. It's even used of fiery serpents. So these are heavenly creatures, God's heavenly servants. These aren't your lovely, ethereal. Choir angels strumming hearts and floating on on clouds. These are fiery, burning ones. Most likely because of the link that we have been learning between God's holiness and His presence and fire. Remember, He's with them in a pillar of fire. In a moment, we'll see that there's also smoke here. We think that they are angels because they're described similarly to other angelic or heavenly creatures. Uh, I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel 1. That's going to be to the right in your Bible, maybe two or three large books, Ezekiel chapter 1. We're in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. And while you're turning there, listen even to Revelation. I'm going to, can you multitask? I'm going to read Revelation while you're turning to Ezekiel. In Revelation, John has this vision of four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Are you following this so far? And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Sounds similar, more detail. And then you have Ezekiel chapter 1, which ought to... Blow your mind. Ezekiel sees a vision. uh, Verse 4, fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal. Now, we have a rule in our house that doesn't get followed uh, followed often, and that is don't use the word like as a filler word. I want to like do this and like, you know, like this and like, and like becomes a filler word. Well, here Ezekiel uses the word like in the proper context, because he doesn't know how to explain what he's looking at. He says, verse 5, "...from the midst of it, this gleaming metal, fiery, flashing flame, came the likeness of something like four living creatures." And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. They were like humans, but not humans. Each had four faces. Each had four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot." They sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. The four had their faces and their wings. Their wings touched one another, verse 9. They went straight forward, not turning as they went. Verse 10, the four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side. The four had the face of an eagle. Verse 13, the likeness, what were they like? Their appearance was like burning coals of fire. It was like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. The fire was bright and out of the fire went forth lightning and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. I don't know what to think about this. Then he mentions the spinning wheel sound of their wings, verse 24, like the sound of many waters. Like the sound of the Almighty. A sound of tumult. Like the sound of an army. Last verse, 28. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is something like what Isaiah saw here in this throne room, in the temple. I've heard Don Carson, theologian Don Carson, explain this kind of apocalyptic literature this way. This is what we call apocalyptic literature. It's It's a genre that is describing a future that we've never seen. That's why it's hard. That's why Revelation has all the images and the imagery. Because John is trying to describe something that is happening in eternity with words that are finite. He's trying to describe infinite realities with finite words. And you see Ezekiel try to do it. And you see Isaiah try to do it. And you see John the Revelator try to do it. And Carson says, imagine you are placed in a remote tribe in the middle of Africa, a tribe that has their own language, but that language has never been translated. And he even describes a a tribe that he was familiar with that is pre-stone age. They don't even use stones on their arrows. They use wood, hard wood. And imagine learning their language... And then trying to describe to them electricity using their language. Well, there's these wires that, well, no, you don't know what a wire There's vines that go from tree to tree. Tr- well, they're not really trees. They're, we cut down the trees and we shave off all the limbs and we stick the tree back in the ground. And then we hang the vines from tree to tree. And then it comes down in your house And this electricity is kind of like this unseen spirit that moves real fast and it glows in this ball and it lights up your house so that you can stay up after dark. And they're looking at you scratching their head, just like we read Ezekiel and scratch our heads. This is what he's seeing and he's trying to describe here. So he says each of them had six wings back in Isaiah chapter 6. With two, he covered his face. Why did they cover their face? Probably because even sinless, angelic beings must still shield their face from a holy God. Probably because even an angelic creature knows he is a creature. He knows his creaturely limits. Remember, no one can see God and live. No one. Maybe not even angels, though they are bright creatures, glowing creatures. Here, fiery ones, they must shield their face from the brightest bright of the glory of God on his throne. How long does it take you to adjust your eyes in the morning? When I was a teenager, mom would just come in and flip on the lights in the morning. Wake up, you're going to be late for school. And we squint our eyes and we slowly open them to get used to the bright lights. takes a while, doesn't it? And it should. How long would it take your eyes to adjust to looking into the burning sun? You can't because you shouldn't look into the burning sun. Do not look into the sun. You could not endure the pain and discomfort long enough. It takes, they say, less than two minutes to damage your eyes by looking into the sun if you could endure the discomfort that long. And do we think that we or even the heavenly creatures would ever get used to gazing at the glory of a holy God? I hope not. I hope not. With two, they covered their face. With two, he covered his feet. Reminds us again of Moses covering or taking off his shoes because he stood on, what, holy ground. The angels are angelic beings, and these creatures are ever in the presence of God, ever on holy ground, covering their feet. It could also be a sign of humility before the Lord, or it could even be a bowing posture where they're covering their feet with their wings. And with two wings, they flew. They flew. They are ready and waiting to do the Lord's bidding. When he says, go, they go, because the New Testament word for angel, angelos, is messenger, Sometimes translated pastor. They they are God's messengers and his ministers of goodwill. One commentator said they are all wings and all voice. Means they're ready to serve and ready to praise. One called to the other and said holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here we have the high point of the chapter. Here we have the main focus of the vision. Here we have the revelation of the character of God. Ed Young in his commentary said, The continuous occupation of the seraphim is the blessed work of praising God. They are engaged in the unbroken task of chanting his praises, as should we be. Amen? As should we be. R.C. Sproul says in his book, The Holiness of God, that they sing three times in succession, holy, holy, holy. He says this gives the church her most august anthem. We sang that last week, didn't we? Three times holy. The reason they sing that isn't necessarily a proof of the Trinity, although it could hint at that there are better trinitarian proofs in the bible no this triple repeat some of you know this triple repeat is for emphasis it's for emphasis god uh, wants to emphasize his character by repeating it three times to double a word in the bible such as when jesus says verily verily i say to you or truly truly i say to you to double a word is emphasis this is important what i'm about to say To triple is double emphasis. To triple a word is all caps, all bold, and you underline everything. Now, normally, when you all caps and all bold and underline everything, you're highlighting nothing, right? But holy, holy, holy is the strongest form of the superlative in Hebrew. Kadosh, kadosh, it signifies the entirety of divine perfection. But why holy? Why emphasize holy? You know there's never, in the Bible, never another attribute emphasized in this way. Many attributes, you could all name your favorites, but none. We never hear that God is love, love, love. We do hear that God is love, right? First John. We never hear God is mercy, mercy, mercy. And yet He is full of mercy. They are new every morning, aren't they? We never hear that God is wrath, 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 justice, justice, justice. The reason why is because holy, holy, holy is not just an attribute. It is the sum of all attributes. It is the attribute of all attributes. What do I mean? I mean that God's love is a holy love. Amen? God's wrath is a holy wrath. God's mercy is holy mercy. God's justice is holy justice. But what does that mean? What does holy mean? What does it mean to say God is holy, that his love is holy, that his mercy is holy, that his wrath is holy? Well, we've been learning this in Awana, this word holiness. We've even trend, you can translate it sanctification in the New Testament when it's talking about believers. And the word holy, I've prepped the kids for this. The word holy means what, boys and girls? Anybody? We practiced. It means set apart. It means set apart. God is set apart from, you can fill in the blank, everything and anything. He is separate He is other, is what holy means. His love is a holy other love, a separate love that none can compare. His wrath is a holy wrath unlike any other wrath. Well, you've never seen me angry. No, you've never seen God angry. His justice is a holy justice. Again, this is repeated over and over again in Isaiah. If you read later in Isaiah 44, 45, 46... Those three chapters, at least ten times, God says in one way or the other, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. 46 verse 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. To whom will you compare to God? No one. So don't try. Don't try. I have a list of incredible quotes from theologians long gone and still living about the holiness of God. Not enough time to read all of them. Let me just read you little tidbits of them. One says it's the absolute moral purity of God. Sharnock says it's his absolute, uh, holiness is his beauty. A.W. Pink says holiness is the very excellency of the divine nature. The great God is glorious in holiness, quoting Exodus chapter 15. Holy is a word, just like the word awesome, that I think we ought to reserve for one person, and that is God. Mackerels aren't holy. Cows aren't holy. God is holy. Amen? And the whole earth, as if we didn't know, is full of his glory. The Train of his robe may fill the temple, but the whole earth is full of his glory, the angelic creatures are saying. And then, verse 4 the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. We're still seeing what Isaiah saw, we're still experiencing the revelation of God. We're still in the first four verses. And this shaking of the foundation of the threshold, thresholds being the doorway, perhaps Isaiah was unwilling to go beyond the door. Perhaps it's because angels guard the doors as the doors to Eden or the doors to the ark. And it's not the voice of God that's shaking these foundations. It's the voice of the angels praising God that shakes the foundations. The sounds of the creatures in antiphonal praise, that is, they called back and forth to one another, as if this side saying, holy, 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 and this side echoed, holy, 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 back and forth. It was enough to shake the foundations. John Piper is helpful here. He says, again, these aren't your chubby little winged babies fluttering around in God's ear. Not those kind of angels. He said, think more of the blue angels, those jets that fly in thunderous formation, shaking the ground and breaking the sound barrier. That's what Isaiah was hearing. The house was filled with smoke could be translated thick darkness, again, symbolic of the presence of God. He's present in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. We're seeing that in Exodus. Now, almost all of his senses have been activated. His sense of sight, sound, smell, touch. He feels the ground shake and soon we'll see taste as his lips are touched. Listen, beloved, our church building may not move or shake or fill with smoke. But if we are to truly enter into the presence of God in our worship, whether it's singing or preaching or devotional or reading, then the very marrow of our souls should quake and shake in terror and awe and humility, and joy, and praise. Amen? Then we know we've been in the presence of a holy God. How do you respond to a holy God? Well, he must reveal himself, and he just did. And remember, this is a vision. Remember, these are using words that we to describe things that we cannot fully understand. God must be revealed. Secondly, guilt must be realized. Guilt must be realized. Now, in this passage, for the very first time, Isaiah becomes self-aware. He's forgotten about himself so far, wouldn't you? He's seeing all this, and then he realizes, wait a minute, I'm standing here. And the first words out of the mouth of this prophet, a righteous man, one of the righteous men of his generation. The first word out of his mouth is woe. Not woe. Woe, W-O-E, which means cursed. It means damning. He pronounces a curse upon himself. If as Tozer said at the beginning of our sermon, the most important thing about us is what we think of God. Could I suggest that the second most thing, the second most important thing about us is what we think of ourselves. And I'm not about to boost your self-esteem. It's an understanding about ourselves. You hear this often from this pulpit. We preach a high view of God and a what? A low view of man. And that's what Isaiah says saw a high view of God and immediately he realizes how low am I woe is me at the beginning of John Calvin's institutes his kind of magnum opus on theology he says that true solid biblical wisdom a true knowledge of wisdom is this a knowledge of God and a knowledge of self the more holy I realize God is the more sinful I realize I am This is everything for a person to know. This is everything for a church to proclaim. You can typically walk into a church and within moments you can tell do you have a high view of God or do you have a high view of man? Do you have a low view of God or a low view of man? The more higher and holier God is, the more helpless and hopeless I see myself. Listen, there's a difference in... Someone being welcome in the worship and presence of God and someone being comfortable. Everyone is welcome here at this church and should be at the Lord's house, any church. Welcome, all may enter, all who come. None of us, certainly those who have yet to bow the knee to Christ should be comfortable here. It's not our job to make you comfortable, amen? It's our job to welcome you but we shouldn't be comfortable. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he was not comfortable. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have put into place, what is man that you are even mindful of him? We memorized that a few months ago. Psalm 8, verse 4. Isaiah, again, the most righteous man of his day, but one moment in the presence of God revealed his sin and true self. He says, Woe is me. I am lost. I am undone, your translation may say. I am ruined. The word means unraveled. It means probably where we get our word coming apart at the seams. It means to disintegrate. What does it mean to be integrated? It means to be together, right? A man or woman of integrity has it all together. Isaiah was coming disintegrated, he was dissolving coming apart, standing before a holy God. You can find plenty of people to compare yourself to and look pretty good. But you compare yourself to a holy God and you are ruined. You are ruined. As a prophet to the people, he identifies with the people by saying, I'm not only a man of unclean lips, but I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He relates to his people, the people to whom he'll be prophesying. I am one of you. I hope that you see that here. We are no prophets, your pastors. We are preachers. We are under shepherds, but we are also sheep. And we are a part of you as well as teaching and preaching to you. And again, let's talk about this word, woe. It's a curse. It's the opposite of the word, blessed. Blessed. When did Jesus say blessed in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A woe is the opposite of blessing. R.C. Sproul, in another well-known sermon he preaches called the Curse of. Motif. I'd encourage you to look it up and listen. The curse motif. He talks about this idea of woe, of cursing, and he compares the opposite of blessing. And he says, think of Aaron's blessing, priestly blessing in number six. Many of you know this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Sproul says a curse is the opposite of that. What if the Lord... What if this was pronounced upon us? May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and only give you judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever. Can you imagine receiving such a curse? Praise God we won't because Jesus received this curse, didn't he? The Father turned his face away so that he could look upon us. Woes are pronounced to wicked nations. Woes are to, to be pronounced against hypocritical priests and prophets, uh, hypocritical, hypocritical priests and Pharisees, not to God's prophets, and certainly not to be pronounced upon oneself. but Isaiah does, because he's in the presence of a holy God. He realized his guilt. God was revealed. Guilt was realized. Number three, grace must be received. Grace must be received. Here's the good news, beloved. There is grace. God sends one of the burning seraphs with a burning coal, using tongs because of the burning heat, and sears the lips of Isaiah the prophet. The God who is three times holy, three times set apart, is the one who must make us holy and set us apart for his service. Why the lips? Why the lips? Perhaps it's in contrast to the praise from the lips of the angelic creatures. Perhaps the lips, the mouth reveals what's really in the heart. Remember, David, David said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Jesus is out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. Perhaps it's the hypocrisy in his own heart. Probably because it was uh, that Isaiah was a prophet. His mouthpiece was his tool, was his instrument, and God was purifying the instrument that he would use to serve him. When God saved me 30 years ago, he seared my lips. In a moment that I don't understand why and can't explain and don't try to, he removed from my lips filthy talk. I had a filthy, filthy mouth. I didn't care where I was or who I was with. I spewed any kind of language that I wanted to. And the moment God saved me, he seared my lips never to speak that way again. Praise God. I wish he had seared all of my sin in that same dramatic fashion. I don't know why. Maybe he knew one day I would speak for him. I don't know. But the Lord seared his lips This was a uh, figurative illustration and also representation of his sin, guilt being taken away. Look at what the Lord says. He says, behold, this has touched your lips. Excuse me, this is the seraphim saying this, not the Lord. This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Praise be to God that in his exalted position of high and holy, sovereign rule and supreme lordship, he is still a merciful God who forgives. Amen? This could have been the worst part of the vision. This could have been the part where Isaiah does disintegrate. This could have been the part where he disappears as, as an object of God's holy wrath. This could have been the part where he unravels, where God should have utterly destroyed the immortal The the mortal man before him, because God is a consuming fire, it is grace that Isaiah is still standing. Maybe Isaiah was thinking of King Uzziah, who was standing near this very spot when he offered profane worship, and God struck him with leprosy, and Isaiah was ready to be struck in the same way. He should have died, and yet his sins were atoned for. We need to ask that question about a lot of things in the Bible. Why did Adam and Eve survive a moment after they sinned? Why Noah and his family spared? Why the people of the Tower of Babel spared? When God struck down a man named Uzzah for simply touching the ark. When God killed uh, men for offering profane worship in the temple. When God struck down Ananias and Sapphira for lying in church. Why am I even standing here? This is grace received. Grace received. And then finally, once we receive grace, gratitude must be the response. How do you respond to amazing grace? With gratitude. Gratitude that acts. Gratitude that moves. I heard the voice of the Lord. Finally, God speaks. And the Lord says, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And Isaiah said, "Here." Am I, Lord, send me. This is highly unusual. Highly unusual because prophets don't volunteer. Prophets are called. Prophets are chosen by God and called by God. Why don't why do we see Isaiah volunteer? We, we really don't know why he volunteers. But would we expect any other response from a broken servant? Would you respond in any other way, having now... Seen the revealed holiness of God, having had your guilt realized and having received grace, would you not respond this way? Have you received and responded to God's grace this way? Let me end by reading a final quote from John Oswald in his commentary on Isaiah as he summarizes Isaiah's response. To the holiness of God, his guilt revealed, his grace received, and this response of gratitude. Oswald says, having believed with certainty that he was about to be crushed into non-existence by the very holiness of God, and having received an unsought for, unmerited, complete cleansing, what else would Isaiah rather do than hurl himself into God's service? Then he says, those who need to be coerced into God's service are perhaps too little aware of the immensity of God's grace toward them. Let me read that again. That one we don't amen. That one we owe me. Those who need to be coerced are perhaps too little aware of the immensity of God's grace toward them. Have you received amazing grace from a holy God? Has your guilt been revealed? Maybe this morning, your guilt has finally been revealed. Maybe this morning, you see God in his holiness and you realize that you are standing in your sinfulness. You are standing in guilt. That's where you need to be to receive God's grace, amen? And this is the invitation, come. Come to the holy God who reaches out to you to forgive sinners. The holy God sent his holy son to live a holy life that you and I cannot live. That holy son lived a holy life and died a horrid death on the cross at the hand of his holy father, crushing sin to death. And that holy God, because Jesus was a holy God in the flesh, rose from the grave three days later, proving he had the power over sin, death, and hell, and the power to save sinners like you and me. Have you received his grace? We want to introduce you to him. We want to do that this morning after we sing and that service concludes. We want you to come and talk to me. Talk to Pastor Dave or Pastor Paul or if you came with a godly friend, come and let us introduce you to the holiness of God. If you're a believer here and you've been reminded of the grace given to you in spite of the punishment that we deserve, would you respond with gratitude and service? Serve him. Serve the Lord with Gladness. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy are You, Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of Your glory. What do we do? What can we do but to bow in humility? We deserve to be disintegrated, and yet You gave us Your Son. We deserve to be crushed and yet you crushed your son. We deserve to be killed for our sin the moment we draw our first breath and yet you killed your son in our place. Father, this is the grace of the gospel that we sing. And I pray that those who are here that have never bowed the knee to the holy God would do that this morning. That they would confess their sin and their understanding and deservedness of hell and punishment, and call out to the holy God to save them. Because of what Christ has done, we know that you will save those who call upon you. Make us a holy people, because you are a holy God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.